Last week we looked at this passage, Colossians 2, 16 to 3, 4, part one of a, of a two-part um, two-part, two sermons to cover this one passage. And last week we looked specifically at Paul's diagnosis of the false teaching, which we found to be these religious stipulations. The false teaching, when you look at this passage as we just read it, you see that it consists of things like uh, Jewish uh, restrictions, Jewish regulations. In addition, you have worship of angels, asceticism, severity to the body, um, and then these visions that they were supposedly experiencing. And the false teachers advanced these things as a, a way of saying, you need this if you are going to be spiritually whole, if you are going to be spiritually full. And because uh, these believers in Colossians were not going along with that, it was, it was a way of the false teachers and passing judgment on them, or as he says, disqualifying them. They didn't meet the criteria. The false teachers claimed a spiritual superiority that the Colossians lacked because they didn't follow along with these particular religious stipulations. And so Paul's message to them, as we saw last week, is don't let anyone disqualify you with such religious stipulations. Don't let them disqualify you. Well, if last week we looked at the diagnosis of the problem, now we want to spend time looking at the remedy that Paul has offered them in this section as well. And we see that as we look at how this passage is organized and structured, you'll notice that there are two parallel statements. If you have died, in chapter 2, verse 20, or we might say since you have died, he's using this as an argument. This is what's true of you. You've died with Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have died with Christ, and now if you've been resurrected with Christ. In other words, he wants them to know who they are in Christ. And it's knowing who they are in Christ that is the remedy for rebutting this false teaching. And so our sermon in a sentence, again, is the same as last week. It is this. Knowing who you are in Christ, don't let anyone disqualify you with their religious stipulations. With an emphasis on that first part now, knowing who you are in Christ. Knowing who you are in Christ, don't let anyone disqualify you. And so we're going to make three moves in the sermon today. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the theological basis for Paul's argument. We're going to look at the reality of what Jesus has done and that is really this fact of our new life through being united to Jesus. That we have resurrection life because we are connected to Jesus who has been raised from the dead. So first we're going to look at that, that reality. And that's going to serve as the basis then for two other moves. We're going to see how this rebuts the false teaching. And we're going to see, thirdly, how it actually offers a better alternative. Okay. So first let's look at the theological reality that Paul is uh, playing on here, that he is assuming here and using here against the false teaching. And that theological reality is this, as we said. It's that we as believers have died with Christ, and now we actually share with Christ in his resurrection life. Our old selves have died with Christ, and now we have been resurrected in Jesus. And so we talked a little bit about this last week, this doctrine, union with Christ, 
And there may be no other doctrine that is as important as union with Christ in terms of understanding what Christianity believes about salvation, in terms of the fact that we are saved by being connected to Jesus. It's assumed throughout the New Testament. And it's so important to understanding this, to understanding what we believe. And, and we defined union with Christ this way last week. It's this idea that we are so connected to Christ, we're so joined to Jesus, such that what is true of him, what he has accomplished, what he has done, is then true of us. The salvation that he achieved is then mine because I'm connected to him. And I participate in the salvation that is found in him. I gave the illustration of sort of being on an airplane last week, this idea of being in the airplane, like we are in Christ. And so where the airplane goes, if you are on an airplane, when the airplane goes to a certain elevation, well, what happens? You inevitably are at that elevation as well. And when the airplane lands, you are inevitably landing as well. You go where the airplane goes. And so where Christ has gone into the grave and then risen out of the grave, so we Go with him into the grave and out of the grave. We are joined by him, by, by trusting in him. We, we grasp onto Christ by faith, and he takes hold of us by giving us his spirit that indwells us. We are indwelt by the spirit of Christ. Other images that scripture uses, of course, we have the images of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Um, these are ones that come from scripture. Uh, baptism, this idea, uh, as he talked about in chapter 2, of being buried with Christ as we go under the water. It's a picture of our being united with Jesus in his death, but then also being united as we are raised from death, as we are lifted out of the water. It's a picture of our burial and resurrection with Christ. Or the Lord's Supper, this, this emblem of the body and uh, picturing the body and blood of Christ, the, the bread and the cup picturing his death given for us himself given over in death for us to save us. And we, what do we do? We participate in it. We eat it. We undergo the symbolism, just like we undergo the water in baptism. So we eat the element, symbolizing that what these things symbolize, Jesus' death, is true of me. It's, it's, it's mine for those who believe. Another picture that scripture gives us, though, is this idea of, of uh, Jesus as a new Adam. And I want to reflect on this a little bit here. What I'm asking you to do is put on your thinking caps a little bit with me, and it's going to have a lot of payoff as we think about uh, the rest of this passage. But this idea that as we, if you're familiar with the uh, beginnings of the Bible, you know that we have Adam and Eve, the first parents of humanity. And what happens is Adam's behavior, his decisions, his actions, infect the rest of humanity, right? And so when he sins, it plunges all of humanity into sin. His actions are not merely his own, but they represent all of humanity. He stands in for humanity, and he determines their destiny. And scripture, specifically Paul, says that Jesus is like a new Adam, such that in, this, in a similar way to how Adam uh, determined the destiny of the original humanity, so Jesus' actions now determine the destiny of a new humanity. A, a, a recreated, a redeemed, a renewed humanity. God is making a new humanity, and we have a new Adam that sets the course for us. And so rather than being joined and united to Adam, believers have now shifted identity, and we are joined and united to Christ, our new Adam. And so you get sort of this, uh, you, get, you might think of it in Scripture, especially in Paul, other authors do this as well, like John, but they kind of present two different worlds. You either exist in this age or there's also this age to come that we are already participating in. 
Uh, you think of it as kind of like two spheres or two eras, two domains. On the one hand, we have the one that's characterized by Adam, the first creation and the first human. This is, uh, this is an, a, a domain that's characterized by being condemned before God, being sinful and condemned. In Christ, though, we are justified. We are forgiven. We are made right. Our sin is dealt with. Our guilt has, has been removed. And so in Adam, in this domain, we are under the sentence of death. The wages of sin is death. But what do we get in Christ? We get eternal life. We get resurrection, in other words. Christ undoes the death. In the first one, we have the, the, this area is characterized by the old covenant, which gave laws, but didn't actually, those laws didn't actually get to the heart. And now, in this era with Christ, we have a new covenant, which it's the law actually written on our heart. So whereas in the first era, it's characterized what Paul describes as the flesh, being in the flesh, that is our, 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 our sinful nature, we might say, without the operation and influence of the Spirit. Now, under the new covenant, we are characterized and, and, and influenced by and controlled by the Spirit. And so flesh and spirit can contrast each other. We are now those who are influenced and under the control of the Spirit, animated by the Spirit. The first one is a fallen creation, and now Paul will speak about a new creation. We have our old self, or our, literally our old humanity, the word self that oftentimes gets translated when, when Paul speaks about our old self. It's literally the old man or old humanity. So that's who we were in Adam, the old humanity, and now we are a new self, a new humanity in Jesus. Okay, so we get this, this sort of dualism. Now, let me just read to you some of these passages in Paul that show this, um, as I've just kind of surveyed it for you. Now look at uh, Romans 5, or just listen to Romans 5. Verses 18 and 19, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, that is a breaking a law, transgressing a law, as that one trespass of Adam led to condemning all men, the condemnation of all men, all those who were connected to Adam, so now one act of righteousness, that is Jesus' death on the cross, that leads to the justification in life for all men, that is all men that are now in him. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many, all those in him, were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus going to the cross, the many, all those in him, will be made righteous. Adam makes us sinful and condemned. Jesus clears our guilt and makes us righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. For as, this is Paul again, for as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam we receive death. In Christ we will actually be raised from the dead, both spiritually now, but here specifically in Corinthians, he's talking about physically raised from the dead. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're buried with Jesus in death, death to sin there, in other words. Sin doesn't have a hold on us. And now we've been raised to a new way of living. We are new people. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Trespasses is the idea of breaking God's commandments. We were dead in those things. We were corrupt. Who we were meant to be before God was corrupt. Not just physically, but spiritually, we might say. But in verse 4 and 5, God was rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in those trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. So we were dead, but now we are alive. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and so it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. There's a transfer that has occurred. And in, in Colossians 3, 9, and 10 that we'll get to next week, seeing that we have put off the old self or old humanity with all of its practices, and now we have put on the new self, the new humanity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. He belongs to the new creation order, not the old creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has already come in Christ. Even as there's an overlap, we still live in some ways with the lingering effects of the flesh. We still live in this old order, this old creation. And yet we belong, most importantly, to a new order, a new creation controlled by the Spirit. And so Paul can say in Romans 7 verse 4, you have died to the law, to the, to the old covenant, that old order of things. You've died to the law through the body of Christ, through his death. Verse 6, so, so we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's the new covenant. We were dead to the old system of the law, which just gave us commands that we weren't able to actually fulfill. It told us what to do without giving us the ability to do it. That's what characterized the old covenant. But now we serve in the new covenant. We serve in that way according to the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, but one that's written on our hearts. And so Paul can say in Romans 6, verse 14, you are not under law, that is the old covenant, you are under grace. You're under the grace covenant. Romans 8, 7, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Those people that have their mind set on the flesh, those people that are unsaved, they don't have the spirit, they're, they're fleshly people, the consequence they get is death. You, however, are not of the flesh. You are of the spirit. We are now animated and controlled by the Spirit. And so what we get here, point number one in the sermon, is that we are united to Christ, and because we are united with Christ, we have transferred from this old order, and we have now been placed into the kingdom of Christ, a new creation. We are new people. The old us has died. The new us is here in Christ. We are now new humanity in Jesus. So now Paul is going to take that reality of our union with Christ and our transfer to a new creation. And he's going to apply that to the false teaching. And so first he's going to say, don't let anyone disqualify you with religiosity because through Christ, you've died to it. You have been released from that human religiosity. So notice the language. We have similar language as we just surveyed the New Testament. We have similar language in this passage. Look at 2.20. He says, if or since with Christ you died. You, who you were prior to Christ, is a dead person. That person is no more. You are dead. Sometimes we hear about in, especially in like Muslim contexts or in, in missionary contexts, when someone converts to Christianity, in some cultures, their family actually holds a funeral for that person. It's like, you're dead to me. If you're going to convert out of Islam into Christianity, you are dead to us. And so they hold a funeral for that person, considering them as good as dead. It's as if Paul is saying, yes, that's exactly right. We are to hold a funeral for our old self. It is no more. It is dead. That old us is gone. We are not that person anymore. That is how we should think about our former selves prior to Christ. 
But now we know, as we've looked at different scriptures, Paul can talk about his di- our old self dying with respect to a lot of different things. So what in particular here is he saying we've died to? Here, he's saying that we have died to the elemental spirits of the world, or literally it could be the elemental principles of the world, which is a very difficult phrase to interpret, but I think the general idea, we could kind of paraphrase it this way. It's the basic building blocks of the old world order, the way things were in Adam, the old creation, the fallen system. And here, he's he's specifically associating that with human attempts at religiosity, these regulations. Paul is saying all these things the false teachers offer you That's part of the old system. That's a a part of old human attempts to do religion as a way to sort of make your way up to God, to sort of develop your own spirituality. And he's saying, Colossians, you've died to that. Just like you've died to sin and everything else you talk about, you've also died to human religiosity. You see, the good news about Jesus' death, the gospel, it frees us from that sort of religiosity. Because it's, as we talked about last week, it's the end of all performative religion. It's the end of all attempts to earn or to work for our salvation or our our acceptance with God. Because God, in Christ, is the one who has accomplished it for us. Galatians 2.21, I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't make God's grace in Christ as if it didn't matter, as if it was nothing. Because if righteousness were through my law-keeping, then why would Jesus have died? He would have died for no purpose, Paul says. But if Christ died for a reason, which he has... If anything, it proves that it wasn't me who could do the saving. I needed Christ to do the saving. So I don't nullify God's grace. Salvation is by God's grace. Christ's death is the decisive death blow to all human religiosity. And so if you're here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ for salvation, that's what we would long for you to do today. You cannot save yourself. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, of all, he, he kind of gives us his religious uh, uh, um, job, or what do you call that when you, when you present your resume? That's what I'm looking for, resume. He kind of presents his religious resume, right, with all his criteria of what he has for him, religiously speaking. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, who was circumcised on the eighth day. As to the law, he was, he was zealous. He was a Pharisee. He had it all, but he counts it as loss. Why? Because that can't allow him to know Christ. He he, he, he counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, having a righteousness that doesn't come through law-keeping, but that's found in faith in Christ. And so we would call you as well. Don't look to religion to save you. Don't look to anything that you can do to save you. Trust in Christ. But as believers who have come to grips with that reality, that means that that old life of, of performative religion, of human religiosity, is dead. That's one of the things that died with Christ. It's left in the grave. We held a funeral for that way of life. And so Paul says, like, why, he says in verse 20, why as if you were still alive in the world? Why as if you were still living over here? Living to that way of thinking. Do you submit yourselves to those sort of regulations? We have died to that human tendency of religiosity. We have transitioned. We are, when he says that we've died to it, it's as if you can say that there's been a severing. We've, there's a decisive break that has occurred, that we've been released from it. If, uh, so I used to work at Uline before I worked at, well, before the mission, but before at Crossway. And so let's just say I'm, I take into consideration the fact that I worked at Uline, and I had 
what, my managers, different layers of management there, big company, corporate America. And let's say, it's been a while since I worked there, but let's say I got a call from one of my former managers tomorrow morning, and you know, I answer my phone and I'm like, hello? And they're like, hey, Kirk, is this Kirk? Yeah, where are you? Well, I'm at home. I'm, I, I'm doing work. I'm, I passed your crossway. Where are you? You're not here for your shift. What are you, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't work for you anymore. Well, whatever, I, 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 can't, I can't hear it. We need you to come in right away. You are late and you need to get here now as soon as you can. Get in your car and get over here now. Hold on, I don't work for you anymore though. Like I'm not gonna come into my shift. What are you, wait, my shift, I don't have a shift. I, I work for Crossway now. That's the idea here of what Paul is saying. Like there's a, a, a severing has occurred. And we should think of it similar with our old self that was dominated by sin and by human religiosity. When it, when it calls our number and says, hey, I need you to behave in a certain way. Hey, come with me. You didn't show up to your shift today. We say, what are you talking about? I don't work for you anymore. As Paul says in Romans 6, we are no longer slaves of sin. I don't know why I'm still talking on the phone. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. We have a new master. And so we tell our sin, I don't work for you anymore. We tell human velocity, you're not my boss anymore. I have a new master. And so Paul also says, not only have we died to those things, but our life is now bound up in the resurrected Christ. Not only did we die, we also were raised. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 with me. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. That's the, that's the flip side of dying with Christ, is raising with Christ. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life, that is your resurrection life, that life that you now have in Christ, being raised with him, that's hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your resurrection life. Like, he's the one that has raised you. That's where your resurrection life is found. When Christ appears, when he comes again, in other words, his second coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, so let's unpack this. First of all, Paul is saying that already we have participated in Jesus' resurrection. In Scripture's resurrection, biblically speaking, for, for much of the Old Testament, it was, you know, it was seen as this thing that's going to happen at the very end of the ages. And Jesus' resurrection sort of uh, throws all of that into it's a, a bit of a curveball, right? Because resurrection, which is this end-time category, now happens in the middle of history. Jesus has been resurrected. And now as believers who trust in him and are joined to him, we too have already been resurrected even as we continue to exist in this world. We are living demonstrations of end-time realities. We have been raised already. Already we have been raised with Jesus, spiritually speaking. Physically, not yet. But spiritually speaking, we are being renewed according to that resurrection. You have been united to Christ such that when Jesus died, your old self was laid to rest with him. And when Jesus rose from the grave, your new self rose out of the grave with him. And so you have experienced resurrection in Jesus, spiritually speaking. And yet, this resurrection life that we have is hidden right now, he says. Okay? Now, on the one hand, he says it's hidden with Christ, and I think that means this idea that it's located in Christ, it's bound up with Christ. This word hidden, it, it can actually mean the idea of being hidden away, like you might hide something away like treasure. You might put something in a vault or a safe. And so part of the idea here is that just like we might put valuables in a safe, 
or a security box. So our resurrection life, our eternal life with Jesus, is like hidden in the vault that is Jesus. It's secure in Jesus. That our resurrection life is so bound up with Christ that the only way for your resurrection life to ever come into jeopardy would be for Christ to somehow be unresurrected. And that's not going to happen because he has passed through death once and for all and death no longer has a hold on him, as Paul says in Romans 6. But our resurrection life is also hidden in the sense that it currently can't be seen by the naked eye. It's currently invisible. If you look at us, we look like everybody else, physically speaking. We are spiritually raised, but this can't be seen by the naked eye. Yet Paul is saying that when Christ appears, then your participation in Christ's resurrection will be made apparent to everyone else. Your resurrection life, which cannot be seen, when Christ appears, then it will be made to appear. Because then you will also be physically raised and glorified with him. Who you are will come to full, full fulfillment. Who you already are now will be fully manifest when Jesus comes. And not only will you be spiritually raised anymore, but you will also be physically raised as well. 1 John 3, 2 says something quite similar to this, where John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are children now, and that full adoption as children, as Paul says in Romans 8, our resurrection, we don't see that yet, but it's coming, and we already have the down payment of it, the Spirit of God. And so Paul is first saying, he's saying, hey, don't let anyone disqualify you because you're resurrected people. Who are they to disqualify you? Uh, the other, the other uh, week, Anne lost her phone, which also has her cards in it. And uh, we thought that maybe, you know, she lost it out more in the public area where someone could have picked it up. And it's like, oh boy, it's got her driver's license, her credit cards. Like someone could easily steal her identity. It ended up being that Abel had just got a hold of it and he hid it in the dirty laundry bin. <laughs> So, yep, third child, there you go. So, but if anyone's ever had their identity stolen, you know how terrible and annoying that is. Someone can get your identity and what can they do? They spend a lot of money, they put a lot of debt in your name, it can mess with your, your credit score. In many ways, it can disqualify you from things. It can try to, a, a identity theft can try to disqualify things about you by saying these things are true of you that aren't really true of you. You racked up this much debt, or, or whatever the person does with your identity. And the false teachers here are trying to commit identity theft against the Colossians. They're trying to say, these things are actually true of you. This is, there's, there's debt against you. You need to do these sort of things. When in fact, that's not who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ is resurrected people who have died to such religiosity. And the false teachers want to come in and say, no, 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 this is actually what you need to do. That's identity theft. It's to rob away who they actually are in Christ, raised people. And so Paul says, don't, don't let these false teachers disqualify you. You are participating in Christ's resurrection life. And although that resurrection life is currently hidden from view, one day when Jesus appears, so too your resurrection life will make its appearance. What is already true of you will then be made apparent to all in your very physical resurrection at Christ's return. And so who are these false teachers to disqualify you as if you have anything lacking? You're raised from the dead. And so he tells them instead, 
to fix their minds on things above. Now, just one brief comment. This is a passage that oftentimes is very misunderstood when people see in chapter 3, verse uh, 1 and 2, this idea of seeking the things that are above or not setting their minds on things on earth, but to seek the things that are above. Sometimes if you read it out of context, you would probably think that what Paul means here is don't focus on like earthly matters, like your job or your house or your bank account, but focus on heavenly matters. And although there are places in Scripture that can say similar things, like Jesus says in Matthew 5, I believe it is, or Matthew 5 or 6, like don't worry about your material needs, but seek first the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Paul is saying here. In context, he's still addressing the false teaching. And so what he's talking about here with earthly things, I think, is the regulations. All those things that have to do with dietary restrictions, circumcision, uh, religious holidays. Don't fixate on those sort of things. Fix your mind on the realities of heaven. That is who you are in Christ. That you've already inwardly been resurrected in him, in him, and one day you will outwardly be physically resurrected with him. You are seated now with Christ in the heavenly places. Put your mind on that. Which then brings us to our third move in this sermon, which is that it actually provides us a better alternative to our walk with Christ. And so you'll notice that with these regulations... Uh, the false teachers seem to be advocating this religiosity as a way of promoting spirituality. And so Paul will say in verse 20, 23, he'll say that these things are actually of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The idea seems to be that the false teachers promoted them as if they were useful in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And actually, if we were to continue in the context as we get to next week, verse 5 and following, we'll see that Paul takes this reality of who we are in Christ and he applies it to transformed living. And so Paul sees this idea of fixing our mind on who we are in Christ as actually something that is much better than what the false teachers offer. Not only does it rebut it, but it actually offers a better alternative. It's actually the way we grow in Christ is by realizing who we are. So rather than the regulations and religious observances, this is where true transformation is found, by recognizing and living out who we are in Christ. And so don't let anyone disqualify you with religiosity since it's in Christ that true transformation is found. And so he says we are to set our minds on these realities, to fix our mind on the reality that we are people who have died and have been raised with Christ. Earlier this summer, we celebrated uh, Juneteenth. And if you know anything about the, the history of Juneteenth, what it is is it's commemorating the, the declaration of, of African slaves in America being released from their slavery. And the date, Juneteenth, um, is actually the day in which when Abraham Lincoln made that declaration, you know, they didn't have email, they didn't have social media and Twitter, so everyone could find out right away what had to happen. The soldiers from the north had to kind of make their way through the south in order to declare that liberation so that everyone would be made aware of it. And so the final slaves to eventually hear that declaration that they had been freed were in Texas. And that's the date that's being commemorated in Juneteenth, as best as I understand it. So these slaves in Texas, from the moment Abraham Lincoln declares them free, they are legally free, right? Legally, they're free people. But they were living without knowledge of their freedom. Their sense of their status and condition was that they were still slaves, they lived as if, as if they were slaves. They thought they were still enslaved. And so they lived like it. 
And in a similar way, we need to live in light of the reality that we have been liberated from sin. Sometimes we live like those slaves who, who it's like as if we haven't heard the message of liberation that we've been set free. We don't live in light of the reality of who we actually are in Christ, people who have been set free. Martin Luther famously said that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, trying to communicate this idea that justification is not based on you know, this idea that we are morally improved and somehow we, we become right with God once we fix ourselves, right? That was a, that's a big thing in, in, in Protestant theology and, and what Paul teaches and elsewhere in the New Testament is that we are right with God even though we ourselves are not right. But we can subtly use that sort of theology to divorce justification from sanctification. We can use it as an excuse to say, well, yes, I'm saved, not by what I do, and therefore it becomes irrelevant how I live there on out. And so it's true that, we're, that we are saved as saint and sinner, but if you're going to capitalize saint or sinner, you would put, the, you would put saint in the bold font. You would capitalize saint. That is our new identity. When Paul thinks about, shall we continue in sin in Romans 6, he says, no way. How can we live in sin? He doesn't ask, like, how could it be possible that we would fight sin? I don't know. That sounds crazy. No, what he says is it sounds crazy that we would continue in sin. There's a new identity. And sometimes I think we can make excuses for ourselves, assuming that, like, yes, the remaining sin in our lives is there, but that becomes the dominant way we think about ourselves. It's an excuse to continue in sin. We are not yet entirely renewed. That's true. We still, and forever, until Christ comes again, we will still battle with sin. We will still retain a, a tendency towards sin. We are not entirely renewed. But we are genuinely new. And yes, we still battle with sin in the flesh, but sin is now our enemy, and it is not our Lord. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, God became man not simply to produce a better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not simply moral improvement. It's utter transformation. Christ's work of making new men is not mere improvement, he says, but transformation. I, I, I tend to think that uh, one of the most distressing illnesses that's probably out there would be Alzheimer's because you actually start to lose a sense of who you are, right? You can forget who you are. And when you forget who you are, what, what happens? You don't know how to live accordingly anymore. And so we have, we have these things called silver alerts, I believe they're called. Like if someone who's elderly and maybe has dementia or Alzheimer's, they don't kind of have a sense of who they are, they're prone to maybe wander off and not know who they are anymore, where they're to be. Losing a sense of your identity can have devastating results. And so likewise, losing a sense of our, our own identity in Christ will have devastating result. We start to believe, like those slaves that we talked about from Juneteenth, that they're still enslaved. We need to rather consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, not forgetting who we are in Christ. You see, we have a new identity now in Christ. And that new identity, according to Scripture, provides us a new mentality that ushers forth in a new morality. We have a new identity that gives us a new mentality that ushers forth in a new morality. 
And so Paul can say in Romans 12, verse 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's actually our mindset that is changed, and that actually will seep down into a new way of life. Or in Ephesians 4, 23, he talks about our old and new humanity uh, uh, in terms of that we are renewed by the spirits of our mind, that one of the ways we come to live as the new humanity is our minds are being renewed. Or here in chapter 3, verse 10 of Colossians, he says that our new self is being renewed in knowledge. We have a, not only a new identity, but that's going to come to bear in a new mentality. We're going to actually see ourselves as new. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, Paul says in Romans 6. Uh, what was the queen's name that just died? Queen Elizabeth, is it? Okay, I'm not very good at celebrities and all that sort of stuff. So she just died, right? And I believe it's King Charles now who has been coronated. Now, if, if all of a sudden with King Charles, I'm hoping I'm getting that right. Is that right, King Charles? If all of a sudden with King Charles, you know, Britain, England comes over and they say, all right, now we need you to give your loyalty to King Charles. We would, <laughs> that's what we would do, right? We would say, um, you know we're Americans, right? Like there was that whole thing where we stuck the tea in the bay and we're like, we're not paying those taxes. You know, we fought you about it. We became our own nation. That's the idea here. We have a new mindset. We're not loyal to sin anymore. We're not loyal to human religiosity anymore. We don't give our loyalty to King Charles, right? We celebrate July 4th as Christians in that, in that figurative sense. We are Americans. And so here, we are Christians. We are dead to sin. We are alive in Christ. And that new mentality ushers forth in a new morality. We are empowered by this new mindset. Sometimes if you watch a competition, um, you'll see folks who, they just kind of get in a funk. Maybe it's a sport competition or some other sort of skill competition. They sort of get in a funk, and, and they'll say things like, I am just not competing at my level. I'm not being myself. This is not who I am, right? Similarly, that should be our response with sin. This is not who I am. Like, there should be a holy sense of frustration, a holy discontentment with sin when we're not living consistent with who we are in Christ. This is not who I am. So when I was in college, um, my soccer coach was really into sports psychology. It's this entire discipline aimed at helping athletes reach their full potential by helping them play with the confidence in the sort of athlete they know themselves to be. So it's like envisioning, it's helping athletes envision them actually performing at the level they know they can perform. So they're not falling into that mentality of like, I'm not playing at the level I know I can play at. And similarly, we might say that we are renewed for a, a new way of life by having our minds firmly fixed on who we actually are in Christ. Having this mentality will empower us to fight the battle because we know it's not in vain. We know we are fighting a defeated foe. I want to read you a quote from John Owen in his book, Mortification of, of uh, Sin, which I just finished a few days ago. I recommend that book to you. He talks all about this idea of, it's a whole book on this idea of putting to death sin, which we'll get into in verse 5. But he has this quote at the end of the book um, where he talks about how faith, faith in this reality of who we are in Christ, it sets our hearts to work in battling sin believing that we have actually defeated sin, believing that we have actually been raised with Christ is what can set our hearts to actually then do the battle with sin. He says this, and I've, he's a Puritan, and so I 
modified the quote to make it a little bit more understandable. Um, But he says this, By faith, greatly consider the fullness of the supply of grace that is yours in Jesus Christ, and how he can at any time give you strength and deliverance from your sin. Greatly consider, think about what you have in Jesus. And if you don't find success to conquer sin in one instance, because you believe these things, you'll nonetheless be empowered to stay in the chariot. You will not retreat from the battle until it's won. You're going to stay in the fight, in other words, because you know that ultimately you do have victory over it. It's just a matter of time. I confidently say this one thing, that is firmly believing and expecting to receive relief from Jesus Christ, this is more, there's more available there in destroying your sinful lusts and diseases than all the rigid forms of self-affliction, like the Colossians, false teachers here, have come up with. There's more there. Why? Because when I know who I am in Christ, I'm empowered to fight the battle for what I am in Christ. And so knowing who you are in Christ, don't let anyone disqualify you with religious stipulations. We have a better alternative. We have died with Christ and now share with him in his resurrection. This is who we are in Christ. We, 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 we've died from religious, religious religiosity. We have been released from it. And we don't let anyone disqualify us because we actually have transformation already in Christ. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is one of the ways weekly where we are um, given the opportunity to fix our mind on who we are in Christ. As, we, as I said, as we partake of the bread and the cup, it is communicating our union with the things depicted therein. The bread and the wine are symbols that depict Christ's saving death for us, his body and blood given, given over for us in his death. But they are symbols that come with the very promise of God that all those who trust in the gospel, these things are true of you. It's a way that, by which we commune with Christ. We actually grab hold by faith those things depicted in the supper. You might think of it similarly to how we have wedding rings. As as we walk around, if you're married and you have a wedding ring, when you look down at the wedding ring, you see that it symbolizes something. It symbolizes, I am married to Anne or whoever your spouse is. But it's not just a picture. It also has those promises involved. We see the promises. We We see that it reflects. It's an emblem of those promises. And so Paul says in Romans 7 that we have died to the law. We've died to that old system. And now we are married to a new spouse, Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is like that wedding ring that we look down at and we see it's God reminding us who we are in Christ. We need that regular reminder. We need to fix our minds on who we are in Christ. And this is what empowers us for the spiritual life. But because the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation, we do believe that it's specifically for those who have placed their faith in Christ to receive that salvation. And so if you're here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, we are so glad that you are here with us this morning, but we would just ask that you would refrain from coming forward and partaking of the elements at this time. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper in a fitting and appropriate way, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so this doesn't, of course, mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that you can only come to the table if you yourself are worthy. Because the Lord's Supper assumes we're not. It assumes that we are sinful. But it does mean we are those who have received the salvation and are living in repentant faith, um, not living with any known unrepentant sin. And so if that's you, we invite you to come forward. 
what we do is we'll use the inner aisles to come forward, and then we'll go back to our seats, and we'll partake of the elements together. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming, we are fixing our mind on who we are in Christ until he comes again.